The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. It is a real honor to be here this morning. Um, I am grateful for many things, grateful to be invited by Brett and Ben, grateful to see Ben after so long. I was with him in East Africa in the summer of 2006. He thinks of me the way I looked then, and all I can think now is how old he is. Um, <laughs> um, no, it's, it's a delight. It's a delight to be here. <clears throat> Thankful to our, our young reader who has already preached uh, the word to us this morning. Um, grateful to be in Oklahoma City to share this word. Before I begin, I have uh, three caveats. Uh, the first is that I am not a preacher, nor am I the son of a preacher. I'm a theologian, I'm a professor, I'm a writer, but I don't really get asked to preach. So I hope that y'all are not about to find out why. <laughs> Second, like every good non-preacher, I have very strong convictions about what makes for good preaching. And this fact, this fact puts fear into the hearts of my students, especially by my Bible and ministry majors. They assume that I expect every sermon to be not only eloquent, but theologically brilliant. On the contrary, I have only three rules for a sermon. It should be rooted in scripture. It should preach the gospel as the good news that it is. And it should show some element of study, some evidence of struggle with the text. And if you've done those three things, if you've checked those boxes, I don't care if you're a good speaker, I don't care if you were funny, I don't care if you were inspirational, if you've done those three things, you have successfully preached a Christian sermon in my book. So I invite y'all to judge me accordingly. Third caveat. Although every sermon is different, in a real sense, I believe that every sermon should be the same. It should proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ as the best possible news, the most significant thing in the universe, the thing that everyone in this room should be willing to live for, and if necessary, die for. No one should walk away from hearing the gospel and shrug their shoulders. That means they've not really heard it. I want y'all to hear it today. But I can only do that with God's help, so I'm going to pray. Oh God, you are our God, and we are your people. Through baptism, you have made us your own. Through communion, you have fed us with yourself. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your most holy mouth. Feed us today by your living word from heaven. Give us the words of eternal life, which we know are found in Jesus Christ alone. To that end, now, would you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth in love to these your people, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. I want to begin with two words. God speaks. I'll say that again. God speaks. It's a simple claim, 
want our children learn from a very young age. It's bedrock to Christian faith. It's part of the ABCs of church. No one is surprised to hear it in worship. It's assumed. It's a given. We wouldn't be here if it weren't true. And yet, as simple as it is, it is one of the most profound mysteries of the faith. God speaks. The living God speaks. The God who created the universe speaks. The God who made each and every one of us speaks. The God who saves us from our sins, who loved us before we were born, who took on flesh in Mary's womb, this God speaks. This is the God we Christians believe who speaks to us. But what does this mean? Even if we could get a handle on the noun, meaning God, what does the verb refer to? When we hear speaks, we think of a physical mouth producing words with vocal cords and tongue and lips, a human being like ourselves chatting and talking. That can't be quite what's in view here. God is not my next door neighbor whispering over the fence. He's not my spouse processing the day over dinner. He is not my boss giving me my next assignment. He's God. So if he speaks, what is he doing? The whole Bible is one long answer to this question. Entire books have been written to address it. Books I read so y'all don't have to. But I think St. Paul, here in this passage, I think St. Paul offers us some clues in these verses from 1 Thessalonians. Paul is writing to relatively recent converts, all Gentiles who came to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry among them. They aren't Jews who already knew God. They are utterly new to worshiping the one God of Israel. He says they turned away from idols in order to do so. They are babies in Christ. When you think about the audience of 1 Thessalonians, think that they are babies in Christ. In his other letters, Paul loves to quote the Old Testament, but he doesn't quote the Old Testament once in this letter. Why? They wouldn't even catch the reference. They don't know their Bibles inside and out. They're new. They're newborn. They're toddler believers. In these opening verses, Paul is writing with thanksgiving about what he has heard about the Thessalonians the Thessalonian believers' faith, hope, and love. And for their sake, he's recounting how he first came to them as an apostle. He uses a number of words and phrases. That was a long passage, but I wanted y'all to, it's a, it's a single unit, and I wanted y'all to hear all these words and phrases. And Because at first glance, they seem to be referring to different things. But in context, we realize they're all referring to one thing. Here are the words and phrases. Word, the word, the word of the Lord, the word of God, the gospel of God, the gospel, our gospel. Okay, he uses the, all seven of those at least once or more than once. In fact, these terms and phrases are synonymous. They're interchangeable. Paul is not talking about many different things. He's talking about one thing. That one thing is this. I'm going to say this a couple times. 
he's talking about the word of the Lord, which is the good news about the Lord Jesus. Okay? It's the word of the Lord. It's the Lord's word that is the good news about the Lord. Which one? Jesus. Okay, I want y'all to see three things here. It's a word because it's a message. It's a message with a specific content articulated in human language and spoken by human beings for other human beings to hear. Paul is not speaking in fancy academic jargon. He's not speaking in angelic or heavenly language that mortals can't understand. In this sense, it's a word like any other. Second, it's good news or gospel, which is what gospel means, because what it's about is Jesus of Nazareth, God's own son, Paul tells us, who was put to death on a cross and raised from the dead by God's awesome power. This Jesus is now in heaven and will return from there to save all those who belong to him. Okay, that's what makes it good news. It's a word. It's good news. This word of good news is therefore the word of God, the word of the Lord in two respects. On one hand, it's a word about him, about the God who raised Jesus from the dead, and about Jesus himself, who is the Lord of all. On the other hand, and this is the key point, it is not merely a word about the Lord God. It is his own word. Somehow, by the power of Almighty God, when Paul and Timothy and Silas speak aloud, the good news about Jesus to these pagan Gentiles, God himself is speaking through them. When the Thessalonians first heard this strange visitor, a former Pharisee, talk to them about the Jewish God and his Jewish Messiah, they realized they were not only listening to a man. Jesus himself was speaking to them through Paul. It turns out then that Paul's word does not come from Paul. How could it? It's no human word. It comes from God. That is why it has power. That is why the Thessalonians left their idols behind. That is why, in the words of one unhappy character in the book of Acts, the whole world is being turned upside down by this word. Because the word of God is on the move, and it is no merely human word. Notice what Paul says in the reading. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What does he mean? He means that human words are words only. They're not worth the paper they're printed on, so to speak. By contrast, the gospel comes backed with power. God's own power the power to raise the dead, the power to forgive sins, the power to deliver from bondage to Satan, to idols, to evil deeds, to anything. When the gospel shows up, you know it's God's word because the Holy Spirit shows up too. Paul thinks this is a clincher. He doesn't have to argue for it. He merely reminds them what they already know to be true. Wherever God speaks, God's spirit is present. Whenever the spirit draws near, you can be sure God's speech will accompany his 
action. The God of Abraham is a God of word and deed. He says and he does. He works and he talks. To be exact, God works in his talking. This is why Paul concludes by saying that the word the Thessalonians received as God's own word is at work among them, which is an odd phrase. The very message of the gospel about Jesus is Jesus' own speech about himself. Say that again. The very message of the gospel about Jesus is Jesus' own speech about himself. When you hear the gospel, it's Jesus telling you about himself. And when Jesus speaks, things happen. We know why. Jesus is no mere man. He's God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He is the word made flesh. He didn't begin in the womb of Mary any more than he came to an end in the tomb of Calvary. He is without beginning or end. He was there at the beginning of all things. It is not someone else's speech that made the universe. It is Jesus who created the heavens and the earth. Sit with that claim for a second. It is Jesus who created the heavens and the earth. Better, Jesus is the word that God spoke in order to create. As Psalm 33 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all their host by the breath of his mouth. All things without exception were made by and in and for God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When they, the eternal, holy, three in one, speak, what happens? Galaxies appear, continents arise, flowers bloom, birds fly, fish swim, humans come into existence. At this royal word, anything can happen, even the dead rise. As Jesus himself puts it, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Think about Jesus' life for a moment. His ministry is a chatty one. He never seems to stop talking. And shocking, unexpected, life-changing things burst onto the scene whenever Jesus says even a single word. Lifeless little girls sit up in their beds. A lame man walks home with his friends. A sinner's faults are forgiven. A storm comes to a standstill. Loaves and fishes are multiplied. Water is turned into wine. Demons turn and run at the word of Jesus. Let me sum it up this way. Jesus, think think of it this way. Jesus is God's own word spread out into a single walking, breathing human life. He is the word, as John's gospel tells us. And this word became flesh in Jesus. He doesn't merely have God's word inside of him the way I might have a precious jewel in my pocket given to me by someone else. He is God's speech in visible, tangible, bleeding human flesh. When God talks, in other words, it is Jesus who comes out. Jesus is the gift. 
He is the pearl of great price. He is the gospel. The message and the messenger are one and the same. The messenger is Jesus, and the message is Jesus. He is the good news. Nothing else and no one else. For no one may come to the Father except through him, and there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Back to Paul. Paul is not Jesus, and he knows it. He is not the gospel, and he is certainly not God's word made flesh. Yet neither is the word he preaches merely human. It's God's word, Jesus' own word, proclaimed through him. So how does that work? The crucial concept we need here is ambassador. Notice what Paul says in verse 4. He has been entrusted with the gospel. Okay, he's, been, he's been given it, but not given it for his permanent ownership, but to care for it share it with others. In this, respect, in this respect, he is very much the recipient of a gift, a gift that comes from another and does not belong to him. Paul is a steward. He is not a source. So when you hear Paul speak the gospel, it's not coming from him. It's coming from elsewhere. Christ himself came to Paul on the road to Damascus, blinded him with his risen glory, and appointed him to go to the nations with the gospel. Christ even told Ananias, if you remember, Ananias is terrified at taking care of this former persecutor of the church. And Christ tells Ananias, I, Christ, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. Paul's calling is a glorious one, but it's also grave. Put it this way, Paul is commissioned to carry the cross of Christ around the Roman Empire. Okay, imagine the Mediterranean Sea, and he is trying to hit every major city. Paul is commissioned to carry the cross of Christ around the Roman Empire until someone finally nails him to it. And he knows it. He does it. Eagerly, gladly, joyfully. Paul glories in nothing but Christ and only in Christ. Christ crucified. And when Paul is counted worthy to suffer for Christ, he volunteers for the opportunity. He does so because he is an ambassador. Here's what he writes in 2 Corinthians 5. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, there's that language again, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We beseech you on behalf of Christ, excuse me, be reconciled to God. You can imagine Paul preaching this in person, right? We beseech you, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This passage may as well be a commentary on our passage from 1 Thessalonians. Picture it this way. Christ is a sovereign monarch 
reigning from heaven, he dispatches earthly ambassadors to speak on his behalf. He entrusts his message of reconciliation, meaning the gospel, to his special emissaries, meaning the apostles. And when any of them, like Paul, shares this message with listeners, it is Christ himself who speaks. So think, think just in our own world, think in human terms, think of our own country. When an ambassador speaks far away from Washington, D.C. in another country, she does so with the authority of the one that she represents. It's not merely the ambassador's word, it's the president's word that she speaks. The ambassador stands in for the president, who is not literally in the room, though the president is symbolically in the room, through the ambassador. Okay, that's how this works in the human world. This is Paul's analogy. And like every analogy about God, it fails. Okay? It fails in the best way. It works only up to a point. How does it fail? God is not bound by time and space. Right? A president can only be in one place at any one time. God isn't limited that way. He can be in any place, in every place at once. So it isn't as if Christ speaks through Paul. Okay, it's not, a, it's not a figure of speech. It is, in fact, Christ who speaks through Paul. How? By Christ's own Holy Spirit. The same Spirit sent from heaven to indwell Paul and to empower his mission. So Christ is in heaven, reigning over all present to all times and all places, and by his spirit in Paul, speaks through Paul's words. This is why the Thessalonians received the word of Paul as more than the word of Paul. In and through his all-too-human voice, they heard another, the voice of God himself. And they responded the only sensible way you should if you hear the king of heaven talking to you. They dashed their idols to the ground, got on their knees, and cast themselves on the mercy of Jesus. In sum, Paul is a go-between. He is a medium, a mediator, an instrument. He is, picture a window, and Paul's aim is to be as transparent as possible so you can see straight through to the one he's representing. He's the line of string between two cups. He's the frequency between two walkie-talkies, he is the clear glass of the cup in which the bright red wine of the Lord's feast is poured for all to see. He is Christ's ambassador to the Gentiles. Okay, let's take stock, okay? I have not said much about either the Bible or unity. I've said a lot about God's word, so I want to take stock. Where does this leave us with our original question about God's word? First, God's word, above all, is God himself. Jesus, from all eternity, spoken by God as his living and omnipotent speech, along with the living breath of God's spirit, who together contain the power to create, the power to forgive, the power to heal, the power to raise the dead. Second, God's word, too, is the gospel, whenever and wherever the good news of Jesus is spoken in this world, God is at work. The word is never alone. It's always accompanied. 
It's preceded and followed by the presence and power of God because God's word changes things because Jesus changes things and nothing can keep Jesus from accomplishing his loving will for us. Third, where does that leave the Bible? Most Christians on most Sundays have a simple ritual when the Bible is read aloud in worship. Some of y'all may be familiar with it. When the passage is finished, the reader says, the word of the Lord. And the people in the pews reply, thanks be to God. Okay, I want it to be clear why this practice makes perfect sense. It is God's habit from the beginning to use us to stand in for him, to speak for him, to share his word with others. It's one of the many ways he forces us to know one another, to care for one another, to depend on one another. Within the biblical story, it goes this way. God entrusts his word to prophets and apostles. They deliver God's word to his people, and if they know what's good for them, they receive it not as the word of men, but as the living word of the living God. Indeed, they cry out in thanks to God for having spoken to them. They realize, rightly, that it is a kind of miracle to hear God speak. More than that, they know that the apostle Peter was right when he answered Jesus' challenge in John chapter 6. There, Jesus asks the the 12 whether they will abandon him like so many others. Some of y'all may know Peter's reply. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. Here's what this means for us. The word of God in the Bible is the word of Christ himself. The word of God in the Bible is Christ speaking to us. He speaks to us through his servants, the prophets and apostles. For this reason, when we read the Bible, when we read it, when we hear it read aloud, when we memorize its verses and delight in its sweetness, Christ himself is feeding us with what we need. Not bread for the stomach, but words that come from the very mouth of God. Words that are for us eternal life because they come from him, because they give us him, because in some mysterious sense they are him. They make us more like him. They draw us to him. They are like spiritual chemotherapy. They burn us clean from the inside out. They make us fit to know him. They make us into his friends. And as he prayed on his final night on earth, they make us one, even as he and the Father are one. When we hear his word as what it is, the word of God, there is nothing in heaven or on earth capable of shattering our unity as his people, the people of the God who speaks. This is the power of God's word. This is the power of the gospel. Amen.